Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast, powered by Exabel. I'm Mark Fleming-Williams. In this episode, I speak to Kelly Kosciuszka of the law firm Schulte, Roth & Zabel. Kelly is a specialist in all the legal matters surrounding the alternative data sector, and in our conversation, we embarked on a tour of the regulatory horizon. During our journey, we touched on insider trading laws, the Q LinkedIn web scraping case, privacy issues, and the best ways that alternative data buyers and providers can protect themselves in a shifting legal environment. I began by asking Kelly how she had first come to alternative data. Sure. Thank you for having me today. That's a great introduction. Most most people are not excited to talk to lawyers, so <laughs> I definitely appreciate that intro. So I'm a partner at a law firm called Schulte, Roth & Zabel in New York, and we our focus is on private funds. So for me, I came to alternative data through working on regulatory matters for private equity funds and hedge funds. Some of our clients were kind of out front on alternative data, and have been using it for years and had to confront as they as they used alternative data because there are some risks because they are going to use this data to inform trading decisions they had to think about the regulatory environment and think about the data they were getting and how they comply with laws that haven't really thought about alternative data and so uh you are so you're focused on uh, advising both funds and alternative data providers, I believe, on all of their aspects of, of the, the legal, the regulatory side of alternative data. What would you say is the is the kind of most uh, relevant law or kind of side of the law uh, to alternative data itself? So where the data is going to be used for any type of trading purposes, we really have to think about insider trading laws. And in addition to insider trading laws, for fund clients in the U.S. who are regulated by what's called the Investment Advisors Act of 1940, not to get too technical. So why were they making Investment Advisor Act? Didn't they know there was a war on at the time? Yeah, I know. I guess they were distracted. Distracted by, get your priorities right. It should have been like Tank, Tank Creation Act or something. Anyway, sorry. No, no, it's fine. So we have additional requirements of having policies and procedures in place that prevent the abuse of what's called material non-public information. And that's a very technical way of saying that our fund clients really do need to think about not just, am I committing insider trading with this, but have I put a thoughtful program in place so that when we're examined by our regulators, we can show we've, we've thought about all the risk areas. So um, MNPI-wise, I mean, uh, putting it in in perhaps Hollywood terms, um, then we've got the uh, we've got the the Wall Street uh, version, which is kind of insider trading. What 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 actually? How do, how is it defined? What does it mean? So it's non-public information that a reasonable investor would find important in making an investment decision, which is not not the easiest definition to understand. But let me explain why that definition and why we, we have concerns about it where alternative data is concerned. There was a case, an SEC, that's our Securities and Exchange Commission, brought a case years ago. It technically was an alternative data, but someone working at, a, at Capital One 
had used his access to the Capital One database to get information from credit card transactions and use that information to trade on it. And that was brought as an insider trading case. It was only about, on average, 2% of credit card sales. But the SEC was able to show in that case that there was a relationship between the information he was getting and the price of the securities. And he was able to make a lot of money on those transactions. So when we look at alternative data, we look at it and say, look, some of it looks like that case. So that's why we treat it as there's a risk of MMPI here. And if we're going to trade on it under U.S. laws, we have to put some policies and procedures around that. Interesting. Is there is the point in that the fact that he had this privileged access and it wasn't available on the market, so nobody else would be able to to to, to trade? So had he bought that on, in a free and open process, that might have been okay. Is that whether is that whether where the problem was? The purchasing it wouldn't have been enough, but you're hitting on a very important issue. It was the breach of duty, and it was a very egregious breach of duty. He was abusing the trust of his employer. And he was accessing the databases in a way that he shouldn't have been. In the U.S., the fact that it it has, is commercially available, just that you can purchase it, usually isn't enough to make it public. Public usually is, I mean, if it had general, kind of like a, a fundamental database would be publicly accessible. Obviously, anything that's on the internet is, is public, but usually it's a not enough just that it's commercialized. Some of these data sets, as you know, are being only sold to like a small number of customers, sometimes five or 10 or 15 or 25. So we'll often just, let's assume there's some risk that a regulator would call it MMPI. Let's get comfortable that this wasn't obtained in a breach of, in breach of a duty. No, I mean, so it's the fact So the breach of the duty is kind of almost the fact that he was doing it in a sneaky and un, unrecognized way. I suppose the next question might be, and in a way which is kind of against what his employers expected, I suppose the next question would be then um, if the employer approves in terms of if the company um, has made this choice that it wants to use this credit card data in, 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 in such and such a way, is it the fact that it's a, a corporation that's doing it that makes it okay? Or do they have to, can they be in breach of duty as well? So for the duty analysis, you have to look at whose data it is and where it came from. So if a credit card company, let's call it aggregated data, it's the credit card company's data, wants to sell its data, that's usually not a problem. Where it gets a little more complicated, a lot of this data, for example, with credit cards is transaction level data. So was that data in the first instance the consumer's data? And if we consider it consumer data in the first instance, then did the company make the right disclosures and have the right to sell that? Stepping back briefly, a lot of this stuff is about the fact that this is really new um, and the laws haven't are, are still, the technology is developing and the regulators are trying to keep up. And so a lot of these definitions are still being written at the moment. So is it true that some of these, some of these subjects which we're talking about today don't have a defined answer is that is that the case at the moment? That's exactly the, the case, is that we have case law on insider trading and we have regulations, but they haven't really been applied in the alternative data context. So we're in somewhat of a gray area where we're trying almost by analogy to understand how our, our laws that haven't contemplated, contemplated this might be applied in the alternative data space. 
Okay, so um, so MMPI is is a is a major consideration, a major concern um, for um, who's that a concern for? Is it more for alternative data provider or more for a um, or a, for a fund itself? I would say first and foremost, it's a concern for the funds because they have both the insider trading risk and then. As I mentioned, they have other regulations that require them to have policies and procedures around it. And in the U.S., they're subject, subject to examination by our SEC. Insider trading cases, though, could be brought against a vendor. So they're secondarily considerations for the vendors. And also, as a commercial matter, if our clients won't buy products because they have regulatory concerns, that affects the vendors from a commercial perspective. So MMPI is a major issue for the for the buyer of the data. Do we have any other cases, any other case law beyond the Capital One one, which which can help provide guidance from, from where we're at at the moment? So we also spend a lot of time kind of on web scraping, which is public information for the most part, but gets a lot of regulatory scrutiny just because they're so, it, one, it's somewhat new for our regulators, and there is a lot of case law around that. As you say, a lot of that is freely available to everyone on the internet. And an example of um, which is which has been passed back at me before when this is when this subject's been touched on is um, that actually when Google first arrived um, back whenever it was kind of two thousand two two thousand three there were corporations complaining then about the fact that Google was crawling their website and you know finding all the information on their website in order for Google to do its job. Um, and they were like, you know, get out, get off my property. You're, you shouldn't be, you shouldn't be kind of poking your way in. So, um, and Google, obviously, you know, the, the whole search engine situation seems like it's got quite, um, quite safe. You don't hear that about, you know, Google being in, in, in violation of, of that. Um, so what's the legal situation looking like for these, these web scrapers? Yeah. So web scraping, I think the name is unfortunate. I think it makes it sound really bad. And there were really early examples, not even not even Google, but where you had Ticketmaster in, in particular had a case where scalpers were coming onto its site using bots, right? Web scraping is really just the automated collection of data, but using bots to basically bring down the Ticketmaster site and to buy up a lot of the tickets and really frustrate the whole purpose of, of the site. So web scraping early on got a very bad name. But as you point out with Google, it serves a lot of useful function these days. And a lot of websites actually like the traffic that web scraping drives. The automation, I mean, the internet is enormous. So it's not surprising that there's some automated tools to try to gather information on websites. The way it had historically been done is companies would put in their terms of use for their robots.txt file or various places that they didn't allow automation, but there was almost a wink and a nod that we'll let you in because there's a fair amount that's good about automation and it, and it drives traffic to the site. And then you are the number one hit on Google. And so what companies would, would typically do is kind of allow the scraping they were comfortable with, but if it was problematic, they might send a cease and desist and they would stop the activity that they didn't like. A few years ago in California in a case called HiQ versus LinkedIn. HiQ for years had scraped LinkedIn's public profiles. HiQ offers a service where they do various analytics because they can tell if someone has changed their public profile a lot recently, maybe they're looking for a job or maybe something is changing. 
LinkedIn was going to get into a similar business. It was creating a competitor. So LinkedIn decided to kick Haikyuu off of its off of its website, so it couldn't scrape anymore. And Q went to the courts in California and said, you have to stop LinkedIn from doing this. We'll go out of business and we should be allowed to scrape LinkedIn's websites. LinkedIn kicked them off legally? No, or, or technically? Like they, they were able to identify which IP addresses Q was accessing from? Do you know how that works? Yeah, it's a great question. So LinkedIn sent a cease and desist and said, stop doing this. And threatened to change it technically so that not only were they sending a legal letter, but they were going to make it so that Q wouldn't be able to scrape exactly how you're describing. So Q went on, I call it going on offense because they went into court first and said, look, we need a preliminary ruling. We should be allowed to scrape and at least until we can get these legal, legal determinations made. And in a preliminary decision, the California court agreed with Haikyuu and said, LinkedIn, you have to allow them to scrape while this case is pending. And you have to, you can't change it technically so that they wouldn't be able to do it. Was there any um, words put around that, that verdict in terms of explanation and in terms of kind of trying to, the beginnings of forming a, you know, a, a basis for this, for this legal position? Sure. And, and there, it, there historically had been case law on this, but usually it was behind it was scraping behind a, a password or behind a login. So the case heavily focused on a law in the U.S. called the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. We often call it the CFAA. The CFAA is an anti-hacking law. It was written before the modern internet, so it didn't really contemplate, like a lot of our laws, it didn't contemplate the technology that's being applied to it. But a big part of the focus of the case was whether this was a violation of the CFAA. And what the court, this this is, we're still, I'm still talking about the trial court. What the trial court analogized it to is there's a part of the internet that's really like the public square. And in, if you're getting, as a company, if you're getting the benefits of this public square, you, and you're, we're not behind a, a password, we're not behind a login, you can't necessarily just kick people out and say, I'll decide what you can use automation on and what you can't use automation on. Now, it's, it's more complicated than that, and it's, it's very fact-specific, but just at a, at a high level, that was um, that was a pretty big deal for us in the web scraping world. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it seems to me like it's an interesting, and I, I don't want to take you into metaphysical, kind of philosophical situation, but it seems to me a little bit like, is the internet different to a bricks and mortar outlet because for example if you're running a pub um then you have the right to decide who's in your pub and is do the walls of your pub uh, equate to the walls of your of your linkedin zone essentially um and so is linkedin like a big pub <laughs> or is it something else and and because uh, the thing about a public square is it's not owned by anyone whereas linkedin might claim that they own things that are on on their site so i mean so we can't equate, essentially. I, I don't know. So I'm, I'm kind of exploring your public square analogy or their public square analogy. Let's use that analogy. I think the way maybe some of us thought about it before Q was you're in the store. And if I'm going to go in the store, then the company at any point can kick me out of the store. But Q said, you're not quite in the store. You're across the street in a public space watching people going in and out of the store and nobody can stop you from counting who, how many people went in and out of the store 
And it's kind of your, and I can see that because from a, from a, like, it's looking in the shop window a bit as well, isn't it? I mean, if you were scraping Amazon, Amazon, um, Amazon pages, then that is, you know, looking at the, the prices that are, that are, um, advertised on the, in the shop window, which you can do from outside the shop. So that was their, that was their justification. So this became kind of ongoing case law in the, in the sector until it's changed. Is that, is that the case? So now everyone kind of looks at that verdict as being the basis at the moment. So it was a preliminary ruling. It went to the Ninth Circuit, which is a court of appeals. It was affirmed by the Ninth Circuit. So that is a, that is a big deal for us. It is now pending in the Supreme Court, our U.S. Supreme Court. The Supreme Court hasn't decided if it will hear the case yet or not. It would be a big deal if the Supreme Court heard the case. So LinkedIn pushed back, essentially. The California um, court... and. Um, Californian court created that verdict. Uh, LinkedIn uh, appealed. It went to the the ninth ninth circuit. Did you say? Yes. The ninth circuit passed the same verdict, and now it's pending. Maybe and LinkedIn have appealed again, and then now it's pending whether or not it'll go into the Supreme Court. Exactly. And at the same time, because it's a preliminary ruling, there is a trial. The case is still going on between LinkedIn and HiQ at the, the California court level. And so the Supreme Court will be watching this at the Californian court level and, and seeing as new evidence is being created. But also the Supreme Court will be thinking about whether this is an important enough precedential um, case to take in order to set the major kind of American law going forward and consider at that level against all the other things that the Supreme Court is currently considering. The Supreme Court won't look at anything going on at the trial court. The Supreme Court will look at this very narrow issue if it decides to take the case that's come up from the Ninth Circuit. And it's a narrow issue related to the, the CFAA. Okay. And in the meantime, either Haikyuu or LinkedIn may decide that they want to they wanna stop and settle. And it could, it could just fade away, or is it unlikely to do that at this point? Oh, that's an interesting point. It could, it could get settled. It could get settled at any, at any point. LinkedIn might feel like it has too much riding on this. And it remains to be seen what the Supreme Court will do. It will, typically the Supreme Court doesn't like to take preliminary rulings. There's a lot of reasons why this isn't the best, what we call vehicle for the Supreme Court to hear. But the Supreme Court, not to complicate things, but has a different CFAA case this term, which which it has already agreed to hear. It doesn't involve web scraping, but the concern has been that if the court went too far in one direction on this particular CFAA case, that it could affect web scraping. Are you able? It's maybe outside your wheelhouse if it's not if it's not alternative data related. But can you, in a couple of words, say what the other case is about? Sure, sure. It's a case called Van Buren. A police officer who had access to a police database as part of his employment, he abused access to that database because he was paid by someone to use the database to look up information he wasn't supposed to look up. And he was prosecuted under the CFAA. And there's a dispute over whether once you had lawful access to a database, if you go beyond that access, if you abuse it, is that a violation of the CFAA? Or was this anti-hacking law really just meant for people breaking into a computer system that they weren't supposed to have access to. Um, okay. And so this is a situation. And so um, Supreme Court wise, any any kind of guidance on on whether we would hear 
um, a, a progress or, 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 you know, progress one way or another um, this year, next year, or it could be five years? Like, have we got any kind of time frame? We should hear whether they'll grant or deny a cert this year. We should hear by the summer. Whether they'll hear it, basically. Whether they'll hear it, exactly. And how long does it normally take once they're hearing it? They should. This is a long time for them to decide whether or not to hear the case. I don't think they'll get it in this term if they decide to hear it. So it, it would probably be next term, which starts in October. They usually run October till late June. Okay. So we're talking kind of within the next 12 months. Well, then within the next nine months, we should have some, we should have some clarity on this. So that's, that's good. Um, okay. And so, uh, that is, so that's a major, it's a bit of a sword of Damocles and there is the possibility that Supreme court hears it and they decide actually the California court was wrong. LinkedIn was right. There's a, there's a potential there that it could be, um, harmful for the web scraping business. Absolutely. Because a lot of the web scrapers, when we talk to them in diligence, if they're a vendor or if our clients are web scraping, a lot of what we do is based on high I mean, high didn't give everyone a free pass. I don't want to suggest that. There's still a lot of liability you could have with web scraping. But it did really encourage this approach where we divide the world into what's publicly accessible, what any human could see. And what is behind a login or a password? Are you able to segment uh, the data, the the web scraping data providers into more at risk and less at risk? Is there is does it segment like that, or would it just be a kind of blanket blanket risk? They vary. They, they certainly vary. I don't. I really don't differentiate based on what type of data it is. So, for example, whether it's credit card data or clickstream data. I'm asking very similar questions, and that is, where did the data come from, and how did it get to you, the vendor? And I usually call it the data chain. And sometimes it's a very simple data chain, right? Like, I'm the app publisher. I collected this data, and now I sell it. It's very simple. Other times, it's a lot more complicated than that. I'm an app publisher. I sent it, I licensed it to a supplier who licensed it to another supplier, who licensed it to an aggregator, and then it got to the vendor. And the reason that chain is significant, because as I mentioned before, I'm interested in there being no breach of duty. So if there are multiple chains, I need to get comfortable that every place where the data was passed, that it was done so in a lawful way. So whether it was making the right disclosures to a consumer, if it's consumer data, or making sure that the contract between two people who transfer the data allowed for it to be used in this way. So it's not necessarily a higher risk, but it gets more complicated the farther down the chain I am. Um, And are we talking from a, so this is obviously the American legal system. um, And I mean, I I mean, this is particularly relevant because because a vast, a vast majority of alternative data happens within the United States. Um, Do you, uh, would this affect a, um, how would it affect the international market in terms of um, if you were a web scraper based in Europe or, or in or somewhere else in the world? Would you um, could you still be scraping websites in the US? How, how do you know how the jurisdiction works? Uh, sure. So I find that no matter where the vendors are, all of this is relevant in part because if I'm talking to them, it means that they have US customers. So, and I absolutely, when I'm talking to web scrapers in various jurisdictions, I'm always interested in the fact that they are, are looking to high queue for some kind of guidance. 
often because in their jurisdictions, even if U.S. law isn't technically applicable to them, they're, this is such a new area that they are looking to U.S. law for guidance. So I find that vendors, even when they're outside the U.S., are talking to me about the high Q case, which is unusual. Usually a United States case would not get attention worldwide like that in a, you know, a data case. It seems so with, with law, then sometimes it's, it's about setting the law that then the rest of the world is trying to, to in a, that the rest will follow. It feels a little bit like Europe was trying to do that with the GDPR on the, on the privacy side. Um, and potentially this could be, and it makes sense again, because the US is kind of the center of the financial markets in this, particularly in this sphere and in general. Um, and so the MNPI could be a, a kind of a, a precedent setting for the rest of the world. I think that's possible. Certainly the rest of the world has insider trading laws. I think, you know, I'm not an expert outside of the U.S., but I think what when I speak to my counterparts in Asia and in Europe, they certainly regulators are looking at all these issues. Some of them tell me they wouldn't be surprised if they wait to see kind of where U.S. regulators come out on this. But the laws are a little different from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. The biggest difference is this concept of a breach of duty is a, a U.S. insider trading law concept. Okay. Um, so MMPI wise, we have talked a little bit about credit card transactions, um, and the capital one case. We've talked a little bit about, uh, web scraping and the high Q LinkedIn case. Um, are there any other, um, parts of alternative data, which has a similar case, uh, question one and question two, um, are there any, which you feel might be ripe for a case, you know, and it just, the case hasn't arrived, but there is interesting aspects of law, which, which are unresolved in this area. Sure. And so on web scraping, I'm just going to make one slight distinction, which is confusing about web scraping. We yeah. get a lot of regulatory scrutiny about web scraping. We hear a lot of questions from regulators about it. I would argue that the way we're scraping, it's not MMPI because it's public information. But there's a concern of, of whether it's a deceptive device, whether we have done something where a website was accessible to us, it told us not to scrape and we violated, you know, almost like we lied because we did something we weren't supposed to do on the website. So it definitely gets caught up in this world, but there's just a, I make a slight distinction between the non-public data and the web scrape data. I, I misspoke. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. So I, I, it doesn't fit within, within. Yeah. So, so absolutely. So in terms of your question about, you know, where we think we might see the, the what I'll call the first case, it won't even be the next case. I think there are two ways we'll see it. One is, and I mentioned it before, and I don't mean to get so technical on the laws, but this, this mm -hmm. law that applies to the private funds, that requires them to have policies and procedures in place to prevent the, the misuse of MMPI. That is a much lower standard for a regulator to bring, right? I'm not saying you committed insider trading, but I am saying I came in to evaluate your program and I see a lot of risks and you didn't put enough policies around that. that so we would not be surprised if we see a case like that. That would be very specific to the private fund world. I think there will eventually be an insider trading case. It would, I can't tell you which kind of data set it would be. I, I would say it actually is much easier with financial data sets just to draw a connection than, than some of the other data sets. But that would be one where, at least in the US, where it was you know, 
information that was that was easier to draw connection-wise material to stock prices. And where for our breach of duty analysis, I think you would see really egregious conduct. For example, if consumers were lied to, right? And if you said, you know, we'll never ever sell your de-identified data for any reason, and then you were selling it, that would be a pretty egregious breach of a duty. So I think that's where we would see an insider trading case. I want to come back to um, kind of best practice and best way to um, to kind of protect oneself as a, as either a, a alternative data buyer or or vendor. Um, but first of all, I just wanted to touch on privacy as being an error, which is sometimes talked about as being a concern. And you know, we've got geolocation and and privacy is a is an aspect which is very connected to alternative data from a kind of general public perspective um, potentially. And I just wondered where the law is at with privacy and is that in play and is it as um, pressing a legal issue as it almost kind of is a a PR issue? Absolutely. So one of the things that I'm doing with a particular vendor is I'm trying to understand if they've complied with every particular law that might be applicable. And depending on where they are and what their data set is, that's going to involve privacy laws. So for example, if it's healthcare data in the U.S., we have HIPAA, that's the law that governs healthcare data here. If it's consumer data in the UK, it's GDPR. So absolutely the privacy laws are layered into this because if a vendor was obtaining data in breach of any law, including the privacy laws, which are usually most applicable, that would be very problematic. We wouldn't, if, if it were my client, we wouldn't, we wouldn't use that vendor and take in that data. Who would be at risk? It would be the vendor who'd be at risk rather than the buyer or both? So it, it would be both because not, and this is where it gets a little complicated, at least, at least if the buyer is a is a private fund. I, often my clients aren't at risk under the actual privacy laws, but I could get in trouble under my insider trading laws because now I've obtained data that was obtained, that was in breach of a law. Does that make sense? So even if the privacy law doesn't technically apply to me, because of this regime where I have to get comfortable that data was collected in a lawful manner, I could get in trouble with my regulators on the on the trading side. Yeah. Okay. So that brings us brings us back to the, the best practice question. And so um so what's the best way that a um alternative data buyer, like a fund, and then an alternative data provider, what's the best way that they can protect themselves um, legally, apart from these these big cases we've talked about, which we're kind of waiting and seeing, but um, in terms of in preparation for the law to be written um, around alternative data, what's the best thing one can do now in this kind of soft early stage to, to protect oneself? Sure. So, and the answer, well, part of the answer is going to be the same because I, as a buyer, I want to make sure that this data was acquired in as lawful manner as possible. So for the vendors, the questions I'm asking them is I'm understanding their, their legal and compliance program. A small vendor might not have in-house resources, which is okay. They might have consulted with outside counsel. Occasionally, someone's just been in this field long enough that they understand it. But at, at first, I want to make sure that they really understand the regulatory framework. I then want to be sure that they're complying with any law that may be applicable to them. In the U.S., it gets a little complicated because we don't have comprehensive consumer privacy laws. So one of the things I like in a vendor is if they can point to, if it's consumer data, if they can point to robust consumer disclosures. That makes it much easier for me if I can see that. 
So for vendors, you know, a lot of them now are focused on what does the consumer disclosure look like? If they are down what I call the data chain before, they should have copies of all the contracts in the chain or the relevant portions of the contracts in the chain to get comfortable that everybody is transferring data lawfully. And if it's if there if the data has personal information in it, then another thing that's going to be later on top of this and the privacy laws we discussed is ensuring that the data is anonymized properly. When my clients are buying data, it's always de-identified or anonymized. We are not marketers, we're not interested in personal information, and often the law turns on the fact that it was de-identified or, or properly anonymized. Excellent. Um, is there anything I've? Is there anything which is a major um, on the radar for alternative data from a regulatory or legal perspective, which we haven't touched on? Have we have we done all the greatest hits today? I think I think we've covered. I think we've covered the greatest hits. I mean, I know it's a it's an it's a gray area, which is you know, interesting intellectually as a lawyer, but I know causes a lot of stress for our clients and also also for the vendors. Um, I think for the most part, what I see from the vendors, uh, and I know I'm on the other side of it, usually pushing them and sometimes being somewhat annoying, is I really do see a desire to get this right. Uh, again, they have commercial incentives because they want us to purchase their data. And also they just have lots of incentives that anyone has that wants to run a business in a compliant way. Um, so I think when there is a little bit more guidance, when we're not in a gray area, I think, you know, if the regulators are thoughtful about it and I'm cautiously optimistic that they will be, I think it will actually be a very good thing for the industry because when you're in a gray area, you have to, you have to consider all the possible issues and account for them. Whereas when you have guidance, you kind of know exactly what you need to focus on. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Um, I've actually got another another question, slightly off 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 the subject we've been talking about, but just wondering what the what's the what's the legal situation like in terms of the the law firms? Is it does it tend to be focusing on alternative data? Does it tend to be kind of niche specialist firms, or are the big U.S. law firms um, do they have departments focused on it as well? What's the what's the terrain look, looking like? Is it does, is it is it very competitive, or is it still at an early stage? I would say on the on the fun side of it, it is still at an early-ish stage. A lot of firms are advising on it. Um, I think there are a few at this point that are specialized in it and that particularly the big clients are going to uh, over and over again. On the, on the vendor side, we see uh, more and more law firms consulting on the vendor side. Privacy and cyber law in general, particularly in the U.S., has really, really ramped up. In the past, it's the past few years, but 2020, like a lot of things, was a big year for us in that. You saw a lot of law firms um, adding privacy practices or beefing them up. So for them, that's it's very natural that you could you would represent an alternative data vendor out of that. So we, we certainly see more competition there. I think, not surprisingly, this kind of where the or all of the privacy alternative data issues meet the. MMPI securities tradings issue. It's a smaller universe of people who are who are advising on that. Brilliant. Well, Kelly, um, this has been a really good um, gallop through all the legal implications of, of alternative data, and I felt in very uh, very good hands speaking to someone who's who's clearly on top of all the all the all the nuances in the in the space. So um, so thanks so much for your for your time today, and I hope 
possibly if something does happen, particularly with the with the high cube, or if any major event happens on the legal side, I hope I can invite you back and 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 you can um, keep me up to date. Sure, I'd love to come back. 